0: This is Cammy, and this is Madeline, and you're listening to the Communities That Convert podcast,
1: episode number fifty.
0: Hey, Madeline, can you make a career out of
1: building online communities? Well, let's find out from our guest today, who has done just that. Ooh, let's do that.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Elisa Kamahort-Page. She's been at the forefront of the social web revolution. Elisa's built value for women online for years, and she's a model for how to build communities. I have been watching her for years, been friends with her, and been really enjoying getting to know how to do build communities from her. She co-founded BlogHer in 2005, which bootstrapped for two years before successfully raising four rounds of $20 million of funding, eventually achieving exit by acquisition to She Knows Media. After that, she founded Elisacp.com and she became a community builder again, public speaker, board member, business catalyst consultant. I could go on forever. Her bio is huge. She's amazing. I'm so pleased that you joined us here today and are giving us some of your time to talk about how to build communities.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to see you guys.
0: Um, You're also writing a book right now called Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism and Advocacy for All. And it got us into this huge conversation before we started recording about how important it is for people to use their voice. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the book and tell us what you're doing right now.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, this is not the book I thought I was going to write when I first pitched She Knows Media on, you know, helping me to transition away first by consulting with them. And then a year ago, in a couple of weeks, it will be a year since I completely left And the idea was I was going to write a more typical business slash leadership book, something around all the lessons I learned in the 12 years that I I was with BlogHer. And after the 2016 election happened, a friend reached out to me about a different kind of book, which I eagerly signed on to help write, which is, as you said, Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Activism, and Advocacy for All. But the name, you know, despite the name, this isn't actually about Washington, D.C. This isn't actually about partisan politics. This is about how a whole population has been activated and fired up since the November 16 election. And my feeling is that we don't want to go back. I want people to be really interested in what's happening in the world and what's happening in our communities and what's happening in our companies and what's happening in our schools. And yes, what's happening in government. And we have to figure out how to build that into our lives. I call it work-life activism balance, because Mm -hmm. I don't think we want to go back to complacency and to not, and to being taken aback by what is happening. And so most of the book is about all the impact you can make in your own backyard, in your own community, in your own schools, in your own company and corporate policies with your own shareholder, you know, what are you a shareholder of and how you can make impact that way. There's all sorts of different approaches to making impact. And so this book is all about finding the things you really care about, And figuring out how you're going to commit yourself to making impact on those things in a sustainable way, in a way that lets you be integrated and a whole person and bring that whole person with you to work, to school, to your personal relationships, and really to encourage that that's how we want to be. I think of, you know, when people ask, what's your definition of happiness? Um, And I think there's a lot of literature right now on happiness and being happy. And I think there's a difference between satisfaction and happiness. And a very common definition I hear about happiness is, oh, it's the delta between your expectations and the reality. And I actually think that's the definition of satisfaction. Like you are the most satisfied when things are going the way you expect them to. But to me, happiness is the delta between your values and how you act on them. How far is your behavior from what your values are? And I don't understand how you can be actually happy if you're not acting on your values. And that to me connects to my business and professional life and to my personal life and to my political life. Yeah. And that's great because
0: honestly, when you first started blog her back in 2005, you were really helping what ended up being the biggest community of women bloggers in the world at the time. And I think you did that out of that sort of activism feeling too. So can you talk a little bit about why you built blog her and you and Jory and Lisa and sort of how you came about bringing this together and why it was so important?
2: Yes. We were always a mission-based for-profit company, which was part of our mission to be for-profit. And how it started was really interesting because Lisa Stone and Jory Desjardins and I were not friends. We weren't colleagues. We didn't know one another. We came together somewhat serendipitously. I met Lisa through a personal friend who knew us both and connected us. And I met Jory sitting next to her at a conference and just connecting for 45 minutes and really knowing that there was a person in there who I wanted to do more stuff with. And the thing that was happening back then in early 2005 was there were a lot of conversations about where are the women? And it was not just about, it was about politics. There was the 2004 election and there was still a really low number of women in Congress, low number of women on the Sunday morning talk shows, on the major newspaper editorial pages, op-ed pages, low number of women speaking at tech conferences. And finally, where were the women who were blogging? Because the mainstream media was starting to say, oh, this blogging thing. And they were starting to see bloggers as sources. They were starting to see blogging as a phenomenon. And every person they quoted and every blog they cited and every source they went to was a white man. And yet blogging was this representation of the democratization of media. And so the idea was, what are, are we going to just recreate the old boys network here in this new media when there's no reason to do it? And, and so we were like, so tired of all the excuses for why women weren't speaking and women weren't being quoted. And we, and we sort of had this idea. What if you did a conference that was like any other tech or blogging conference, but all the experts just happened to be women. We didn't have women mostly come and talk about being women. It wasn't like women talking about womany things. We were talking about tech and we were talking about business and we were talking about politics and we were talking about all those things. And we just happened to be women doing so. And there was always that kind of activist nature to what we were doing. And we wanted to validate for these women who were finding a mode of expression and turned out they were really good at it and turned out they were really good at building community and influencing their community. And we were like, why can't you monetize that? Why can't you get paid for your work? Not everybody wants to. I mean, in the beginning, certainly it was very... Counterintuitive to suggest making money off blogging, like people thought, sell out. And we were like, great, but you know who's gonna have no problem making money off their blogging? Men. So let's all just, you know, I always say, what would a white man in a hoodie do when I'm trying to encourage people to, to, <laughs> great. to be confident and put it themselves is. out there and go for things they may not even think they're qualified for because they're you know, to me, it's it's an obvious thing. And so That's really what the idea was, was to create opportunities for these women to get their piece of exposure and community and to at the same time help them learn more about how to do it well and bring about some economic empowerment. And for a lot of women and a lot of women who were doing this were stay at home parents who were looking to contribute to their household income. And that had meaning to them, even if it wasn't huge amounts of money in the beginning, but it had meaning and value.
1: That is so awesome. You know, my background is I started an online community for female musicians in 1996 because there was a need for bringing female musicians together and feeling like you're part of something. And I remember when Blogger started, I was like, this is so cool to help bring together female bloggers. Like anytime there's an opportunity to bring together women in different industries, I just love that. And so, really kudos to what you all did back then. Now, as you mentioned before, a blogger, or as Kimmy was saying, blogger was acquired by She Knows Media in 2014. How did that come to be? And what did you do afterwards?
2: Yeah, so we bootstrapped for two years, and we grew organically. But in that two years, some traditional women's media companies were starting to recognize that all oh, that there's gold in them there are women bloggers. <laughs> and <laughs> they had deep pockets we didn't have. Neither Lisa nor Jory and I had, You know, we were not wealthy. We did not have a lot of money. Everything we were doing was really based on bootstrapping it and bartering and all of these things and going through our life savings, which I did, and taking out personal debt, which I did. And we realized that we could keep being organically growing and we could have a nice business, but we had a little bit more, we didn't want these folks to pay money to leapfrog over us. And we didn't think they would have the right, they didn't come from the community. And we didn't think they were going to really serve the community. And we thought it would just like drive us crazy if we let them leapfrog over us. And then we had some fire in the belly. We wanted some world domination. We were thinking very big. And so that's when we decided to go out and get venture funding. And it was the network portion of our business that represented the kind of scale you know, I just was talking to someone earlier today and I was saying, you know, if all we were doing was a website and the conferences, like I wouldn't know, we wouldn't be a candidate for venture funding. It was the digital network that represented the kind of scale. Every time you take outside investment, whoever is investing in you or giving you capital has expectations and expectation of an outcome. You sign up for that when you take the money, but where you get the money from results in a different kind of expected outcome. You, I mean, I often think people overlook the benefit of just doing debt. Debt is not a dirty word. Most businesses fund themselves at some point through debt. And the expectation for what you do to settle your debt is a lot different than the expectations of what you need to do if you take venture funding. So once you take venture funding, you know the expectation is you're going to have an exit for that company. Now, I'm not saying you immediately are trying to exit, but I'm not saying you don't. I'm saying that is the expectation of you, that you are going to find an exit for that company that's Mm -hmm. going to try and pay your investors back, and hopefully you too. And so, you know, we took, we were taking conversations from the very first, within the very first year we were, we took funding and we just always followed every conversation because that was sort of our duty as the co-founders and people who had taken this money and ultimately, but what ultimately happened and why we eventually did sell was because we had been doing it almost 10 years at that point, we had done four rounds of funding. And the reason we ended up taking more funding is because of two macro things and you can't I think in the beginning, we were a little cocky and a little naive. Like we thought we knew what was going to happen and we thought we had a plan. And so we saw a path to profitability and we didn't want to give up more ownership than we needed to. So we didn't take that much funding. But you know what? Less than one year after we took our first round of funding, the bottom fell out of the economy and we had the recession and we didn't control that. But more than that, think about this. When we started BlogHer, the smartphone didn't exist. Mm -hmm. There were Mm -hmm. no mobile websites. There were no... There was no nothing, right? So just think of all the things that happened in digital over the last 12 years. And you can imagine that we had to reinvest in developing mobile solutions, reinvest in developing video solutions, reinvest. You know, that those were macro dynamics of the market and the economy that affected us. And so after almost 10 years, we were looking at another point of inflection, like, do we reinvest to really be able to create we were creating video content when the sponsor was paying for it right because that would fund us creating that but we weren't set up to just be a video content company and so we were looking at that point of inflection saying do we are we going to reinvest to do this or do we find a partner who's already invested in this but doesn't have what we have and also we were still a very distributed network but the market was starting to really come back to wanting to have big destination websites so SheNow's had big destination websites and a lot of investment in video. We had a community and conferences and a distributed network. So we kind of fit the pieces together and it made a lot of sense. And I think after 10 years, I think Lisa and Jory and I will be forgiven for saying, yeah, let's, let's share the load a little bit. <laughs> let's join <laughs> another company and let's, let's get resources, more resources that will help the community and will help them continue to make money, help them continue to get exposure for their work. So, not only did we sign up for finding an exit when we took the money, but at a certain point in time, it totally made sense for where the business needed to go and where we needed to go as founders.
0: Yeah. And you guys stayed on. Well, you did anyway with She Knows Media. So, kind of ha- explain what you've done for the last, you know, four years.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, we all stayed on varying amounts of time. Lisa left after about a year, Joy left after about a year and a half, and I just left a year ago. And so, I stuck around almost almost three years. And I think it was easiest for me to stick around the longest because the thing that I was most in charge of and, you know, invested in was something they didn't really do at all. So it's not like I was, there are always challenges when you bring companies together. Certainly in my corporate tech days, I lived through a lot of mergers and acquisitions and, you know, none of them were all that successful because it's really hard. And for me, I was running the events business as part of what I did for BlogHer and they, didn't have that discipline or that expertise in-house. So it was a lot easier for me to walk in and sort of slot into what they were doing than to come in and try to run things where they already had a whole infrastructure in place. So I, I think that's particularly why staying so long made sense for me because it was a really longer transition to get that. So doing those conferences and those events and building that community was something that was more understood within the she Knows organization and they I guess needed my help longer maybe as far as that goes. So but eventually eventually you're like you need to like jump out of the nest or let them or let them be the birds that jump out of the nest. <laughs> right.
0: You've taught them what yeah. you need to teach them. It's time to move on to something yeah. new and amazing and better. I think so. also the
2: team, you know, I think actually companies are going quite backwards in how they manage a remote workforce and so most of the Strategic executive staff was in New York, and I was the sort of lone person sitting in my home office in my yoga pants. And I feel like culturally, it was really hard. It was really hard to feel super plugged in to the big decisions and big strategy making, except for a couple times a year when we would all come together and for that purpose. But the day to day, and part of me was like, oh, I could just stay here and like that could be okay. And then I'm like, no, no, that's not me. I think I. I need to like move on, try some new things. And like I said, I was going to go like write a book about my experiences and instead kind of got my world turned upside down.
0: Yeah, that's great. And so you started uh, Lisa CP and you started doing all kinds of amazing work with different entrepreneurs and so on. And one of the things that came up, which kind of came up on my radar again, was this NPR podcast, how I built this. Yes, I love, by the way, it's one of my favorite podcasts. And when I saw you were involved with it in any any way, shape or form, I just squee with glee because (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, I know her. It was very exciting. But you started another community for them and you're starting to work on putting together a conference for them as well. That's coming up in October, I believe, right?
2: Yes. So I think it's really a lesson in why it matters to be a good person in the workplace, someone that people want to work with and have to keep those connections when you make powerful connections to try and keep them. And I know that's called networking and everybody knows they're supposed to do it, but I don't really think of it as networking. I think of it as friendships and relationships in a different way, and it's not transactional. And so, you know, how I got into NPR, which is the brand that I was like, wow, you know, when I left Blogger slash she knows. I wasn't sure I wanted to be the conference lady. Like I did so many other things. And I feel like that's the thing people mostly knew me for with, with good reason. But I'm like, oh, but I, you know, I have so many other colors in my rainbow. And, um, <laughs> you know, but that's fine. As, so someone that was our first executive hire at Blogger who opened up our New York office and we kind of, you know, I consider her a mentor to me in many respects. Her name is Gina Garubo, and she's now the president and CEO of National Public Media, which is the selling arm of NPR. And so she heard they were thinking of doing a conference, and she was like, oh, well, you before you do anything, you need to talk to my colleague, Alisa. So I was brought in for a one-day engagement to do like a strategy session and then write a report with some best practices and recommendations, and that was it. And then it kind of came back and they said, well, can we hire you for a couple of months to do more due diligence and more like really scoping out, what would the budget be? What would the plan be? What would this be? And, and part of me was like, well, there's some of the stuff that I just, it's not my jam. Like there's part of this I love and part of this. And then I'm like, but oh, I can subcontract. I happen to know, funny enough, a whole team of amazing events people from my career, my whole career. And I can just bring someone along. And, and it was sort of a win, win, win. Like NPR needed this help. My friend needed the, the contract I needed the contract, you know, so I'm like, okay, we can all play together. So that was just a couple of months. And then they came back and said, okay, we're pulling the trigger. We're going to do this. What would it take for you guys to just help us produce this and help <laughs> us build the program? And and so then that turned into this all year thing. And I think that they did things in a kind of a similar, you know, Blogger started as the conference. And then we said, oh my God, there's a community. What else can we do for this community? So, how I built this started as a podcast, but they began to get so much feedback, people sending in their own companies. And that's how they started having at the end of every episode the How You Built That segment, which features a listener's company. And they just started getting so much feedback, so many emails. And that was after the first blogger conference. We were just flooded with so much feedback. And I think they took the same approach, and, and all credit to Guy Ross, who you know, I think was the first guy it was like, wow, there's such a community of people around this. What can we do more to serve them? And to me, that's the that's the genesis of a great idea and a great company or a great line of business or whatever you want to call it is saying, Oh my God, there's all these people. what can we do to serve them? And the Facebook group, I just knew from Blog Her that we had Facebook groups for Blog Her and for the events. And I just knew how much people wanted to talk to each other, but have an avenue to talk to us too. And so the, how you built that Facebook group was really about, listen, you want an avenue to talk to the team. And when Guy goes in there and posts, everybody loves it. But you know what? Every single day they are all talking to each other. In the end, they are sustaining one another, giving advice to one another, giving support to one another. And that's what builds communities, not just somehow being a leader of it and dry, you know, broadcasting all your helpful help to your community it's <laughs> providing the place where they commune with one another where you are just the facilitator and the occasional chime in nerve person and the person and the other thing that's really important is that you're the one who sets the tone for what is acceptable content what is acceptable communication what is acceptable community guidelines and that's what i feel so many people miss about doing online community Because they don't, because it's work, you know, it's work to set up guidelines and then enforce them and to be fair and to be, to always come in and have a perspective of the kind of community you want to have. And that's how traditional media has fallen down in their attempts to have interactive online communications around their content. To me, that's the failure of the platform companies that they don't want to take responsibility for the nature of the community that has grown on their platforms. And to me, it's exactly what blogger did right from day one, which is to say, this is our community. This is how it runs. And this is what happens if you don't abide by our guidelines. And now we are just going to reiterate that and enforce that until everybody in the community knows what's okay. And they're there because that's the kind of community they want.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's such such a great answer. And I love the question, you know, how can we serve these people that are gathering together, how can we serve them better? How can we serve them more? That is just the gold plated $100 million question, I think.
2: And it's so surprisingly hard for companies who don't do community to understand. And I don't know why it's so hard to understand because I think people need to think about the communities they're in, even if they're not online, like Do you like it when someone just comes and tells you to do something and there's nothing in it for you, but they just expect you to because you're there? I mean, that's how I think a lot of people treat their online communities. And our question was always like, what's in it for them? What's in it for them? What's the value exchange? And sometimes the value exchange is money, but it doesn't have to be. But they have to feel that there's some return.
1: Yeah. You know, in in listening to you talk, is so obvious. You are like, without a doubt, the queen of harnessing the power of people. How have you done that to build successful online communities?
2: So I think people want, people do desperately want to connect, to feel connection, to feel validated, to feel purposeful. These are things people want. Giving them what they want is one way. But the other thing is they want to feel a sense of consistency. They want to feel a sense of, yes, that expectation meeting reality. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. So I don't think, first of all, one of my cardinal rules is community isn't about giving people a way to talk to you. I think that's how people kind of interpret it. Like Web 1.0 was broadcast. Web 2.0, oh, magical. They can comment. That's not the end of the story. Sure, they can comment. But the key to community is that you answer and that you begin to create a cycle of communication. Now, you don't have to say yes, especially if you have a really diverse community. Not everyone's going to get the answer they want, but they get an answer and they get some transparency about why things are the way they are that they can rationalize and say either, well, I, I understand, I didn't get what I wanted here, but I get why it is the way it is and I'm cool with that and I'm going to stay. Or they can be completely outraged at the way you run your community and leave and that's okay. But at least they know, they know what to expect and they know that they'll get some response. So that's sort of my cardinal rule number one is that you have to have some sense of call and response, that they can talk to you and you answer, even if the answer is no. But the other seemingly contradictory, but not at all contradictory, is that people don't always want you chiming in. I see brands do this all the time. Like anytime someone mentions them online, they have to chime in. And actually, that starts to feel a little like big brother or big sister. Like I was, you may think it's stupid, but a lot of us feel like we're having private conversations, even in public social media threads. So if I'm talking to someone on Twitter or on a public thread on Facebook, it's still a conversation. And I find that too much brands or organizations interrupt the conversation and make it about them in a way we didn't intend when we were having a conversation. So a lot of times the best part of, you know, the hardest part of managing an online community is controlling yourself that, you know, your, your input is not always required or necessary or desirable. And are they just talking about their feelings? Well, they're allowed to have their feelings. They're allowed to be disappointed in you. They're allowed to be mad at you. They may not be, they're not asking you a question or they're not asking you for action. And I think it's really important to recognize when are people asking you for information or action? And when are they not? When are they just expressing how they feel to which they're entitled and they don't appreciate you coming and trying to talk them out of it? That never worked on anyone. Like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so- You know, I think that we would have that conversation all the time when someone something would bubble up that wasn't positive. We'd be like, "Okay, well, what do they want from us here? And most of the time, the answer is they don't want anything from us here. They don't. And I think that's a very human thing. And that I say I will say is the third thing is that where the traditional media and platform companies have really failed is trying to uh, what's the word? Algorithmize human Hmm. connection and community. You cannot replicate it. Or automate it. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Automate it. Algorithmize it. I'm making up that word. I know. I love it. It's a great word. Do it. it. I think that's where they make so many mistakes because you can't. You need a human to understand the nuance of like, what's happening? What's really happening here? What do they really want? And the answer is they want a bitch and they are free to like, it's a free country. Let them complain about you. Or sometimes people like I would always be. I would always find it hilarious. We tried various social media listening tools to try and measure sentiment. And social media tools are great for measuring quantity and data, but they're measuring sentiment. Because we would so often, especially in the early years when blogger had a much more constrained capacity, we would sell out, for example. So we would sell out our conference and you would see people going, Oh my God, Oh my God. Oh no, we've sold out. You know, I am so mad. I can't get into blogger I waited too long. And we would get all these tweets or shares called negative sentiment. And I'm like, Oh no, that is the most positive kind of sentiment because they're upset that they couldn't be with us. Like, and the machines just could not understand that, could not appreciate that. We need humans. And it's like
0: social awareness. I mean, that developing of your social awareness. And that kind of brings me to the next question, which was really about what, Kinds of tips you have for those of us that are looking to grow an engaged online community. So most of the people who listen to this podcast are trying to build a community of some sort. So what are those tips that you would suggest that we do? Like what kinds of things do we need to become better at, or get education in, or whatever to become yes. better? Yeah, we, I community we've been managers
2: around all of my tips, but I would say be human. We used to sign our tweets and our shares because multiple people would use the accounts, we would be human. We were individuals. Even if we represented an organization, we were humans. Um, So be human, talk about human things. Don't be afraid to say feeling words. You're human. Be responsive. Like if someone asks you, they're not always looking for you to respond, but when they ask for your response, do it. Be consistent, apply your policies consistently, apply when you reply and don't consistently. Be transparent, even if the answer is not something you think they're going to like. You know, I'm not saying you have to open up your books to say um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you're managing the community, be, be transparent about why it's managed the way it is. Like what you, what you, what kind of community do you want? And making sure people know that. And really live that ethos of reciprocity, that nobody owes you anything, that if you want your community to do something, what are you doing for them? What have you done, you know, Janet Jackson? It all the way. What have you done for me lately? Like, it's not a fixed asset. Community is not a fixed asset. You don't grow it to a certain size and level of enthusiasm, and then it just sits there like a spigot you can turn on and off. That's actually not how it works. It's a constantly living organism, and it needs tending, and it needs that ethos of reciprocity to just be as as long as you want that community to live. Your ethos of reciprocity has to live. And then the last thing I did was very tactical, which is have a stated policy. What's the code? What's the community guideline? And then enforce it evenly and fairly. That gets very hard. We had many political discussions on Blocker. And when it got to be an election year, it was very, that's when conversations went right up to the line. We had a spirit of civil disagreement. We were omnipartisan. We wanted to have those conversations, but you know, it gets heated. And our community managers and Denise Tanton led our community management team, um, along with Jenna Hatfield and Karen Ballum, and they did a great job. And the people who are our social media managers, Brandy Riley, Melissa Wells, Diane Lang. I mean, all of these people did an amazing job of being humans, being individuals, being consistent, being fair. And they are the most frontline representatives of our company, more than Lisa, Jory, and I were at some point because they were having those conversations every single day as we grew. So I guess those are my long-winded tips.
0: No, they're great. I mean, I think they're easily said and hard to do, right? So these are the kinds of things that you have to pull all together and really look at what is it that you want to do. I like that you say that you don't have to make everyone happy, that it's okay if people leave your community because they don't have the same values or, or things like that. I think we try to sometimes be everything to everyone when we're building these communities and that can backfire.
2: hmm I agree. And and you can't make everyone happy, but you can make everyone feel understood and heard, even if in the end you agree to disagree. And some people are going to be nasty. That happens all the time, but that's their prerogative too. Like, and if someone is going to leave your community because they think you're doing it wrong, like but you're probably in the long run better off. Now, if you start to see an exodus of your community, that's a problem you need to look into. Like, what have you changed? What have you done? To alienate the people who were your community, that's a very important thing to figure out. But you're always going to have some people who like, come check it out. And then they're like, ah, this isn't for me. And if it's not for them, you should be okay with them. You know, you're probably again, long-term better off.
0: And yeah, not taking it personally. I think that's another thing that I think a lot of us, when we're pouring our hearts and souls into these communities have a hard time with not taking that rejection, if you will, personally.
2: I, it, totally personally. I do. But you know what? There's a difference with what, between what i take personally in my heart and how i manage my community in front of everyone so i don't ask myself not to take it personally when someone like i know what you mean about not taking it personally but i think it's it's a little superhuman but you need to be able to draw the line say i may personally be upset with this person and feel they're unfair to me. And how can they not like every single thing I do? And how can they not be my biggest fan? I'm like, what, what, how's that possible? I thought I was super lovable. And yet my public facing self is calm, cool and collected about it. But I, you know, it's really hard. I think to, maybe I would be a more mentally healthy person if I do that. A little bit. <laughs> oh, that's great. You have to care. If you didn't care, like if you didn't care, if you didn't, your community personally, I think you wouldn't be as good a community manager. So I think there's a thing there's, I guess I'm just trying to say there's a difference between what you take personally in your heart and how you move forward productively within your community.
1: This is great. Yeah, this is really great. I feel like we could just talk all day about this. You have like so much great wisdom to share, but unfortunately we have to, you know, wind it down. How can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out can you tell us what the best way is to reach out?
2: Yeah. Well, my website is alisacp.com and my contact page has my email and my phone number even. I'm Alisa C on Twitter, Alisa CP on Instagram. I public, most of my posts are public on Facebook. If you don't like politics, you probably wouldn't like me on Facebook. I like post pictures of vegan food and talk about politics. So I, I like to show, like I said, I like to bring my whole self to what I do. And, but yeah, my website, you can see the kind of work I do. You can see information about my book and all the links to pre-order it, Hint. hint. Yeah, And uh, that's probably the number one place. And all the links to my social are on my website too. So at atlisacp.com.
0: This is great. So we usually have a call to action and we have a few this time. We usually try to get it down to one, but there's three that we have today and, and each of them are very, very good. The first one is you definitely, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're interested in building a community online, as well as a business online, you really do have to join the how you built that community. I'm in there myself personally. I think you joined too, right? Oh, Madeline? yeah. I, it's yeah. one of my
1: favorite podcasts. And when I found out about the Facebook mm-hmm. group, I was all over that. So yes, I'm in yeah, there. I,
0: in fact, I was just in there this morning answering questions. And I don't know. Anyway, I love that community. Yeah. Uh, so the how you built that community is awesome. I'm built by Elisa, started by her. Also, we want to pre-order Elisa's book because it's going to be awesome. I'm going to pre-order it as soon as we get off of this off of this recording today. Uh, we'll put you. the uh, link right in the show notes for you. Uh, so you'll be able to find it and order it. And then the third thing, which I think is probably the most important as far as professional and personal development, and really these are the words of Elisa, so I'm going to just say them as best as I can, is to pick an issue that most touches you. And then just be a little braver and integrate civic participation into your brand. So think about what those issues are that you just are passionate about and how they can connect and overlap with what you're doing in your business and your community and just be a little braver. And kind of throwing into that, there's a lot of studies that have come out in the last year or so that show that CEOs that embrace this way of doing things that look at uh, civic participation as part of their brand are doing better overall as companies than companies that don't. So I I know I can pull up a link to that study. I've seen it floating around, but that's going to be really important, I think, for the world. And I love, Lisa, that you are pulling people into that, like to think about what it is that they can do to be more, um, to just to be more connected. I think it was a, you know, it was an amazing thing that we have to do as individuals and as human beings to make this world a better place. Cosign. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. We'll, we'll be seeing you guys next week. Thank you so much, Alisa, um, again, for coming on. Uh, we really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you.
1: All right. We'll see everybody next week. Bye for now. Bye. Hey, this is Madeline. And I want to let you know, you can connect with us on our website at communities You can get all the information in the show notes for this episode. And we also encourage you to visit us on our Twitter profiles. You can reach out to me at Madeline Sklar, that's spelled M-A-D-A-L-Y-N-S-K-L-A-R. And also to Cammy. her Twitter handle is at Kami Chat, and that's spelled K-A-M-I-C-H-A-T. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: You're listening to the Communities That Convert podcast with Madeline Sklar and Cami Hoiza, where you learn how to build a tribe of raving fans. Stay in touch with Madeline and Cami through their website at CommunitiesThatConvert.com.